Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Art Williams. It is entitled, Physical Israel versus the Church. Thank you, Ron. I thought it would be good to review some of the old information we don't hear too often about physical Israel, the prophecies, the future promises that they were given, and then compare them back to the church. So that's what I've done. So some of this information for us old-timers will be a review, and for others it may be new. To my recollection, some of this information may be 60 years old. <clears throat> and so we're going to begin in Genesis 35, 10 and 11, where God's talking to Jacob. And he's talking about the future of Jacob and what, the, what he is going to do with his uh, sons and the future generations. And he says, God speaking to Jacob, your name is Jacob. You're not, your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel also, God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. And here's the central part of what I want to focus on. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. And then if we follow this, because they'd been down in Egypt, especially Joseph, as we all know the story, Joseph was down there, and he married when he was down there, and we see in Genesis 41, verses 44 and 45, Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name, and I'll let you all to figure out how to say that. And he gave to him a wife, as, as Nenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of An, an Egyptian priest. Joseph married an Egyptian priest. So the sons of Joseph are part Egyptian. There's no racial purity here. And we find in Genesis 48.5 that Israel takes his sons of Joseph and adopts them into his family. And he says, And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto you in the land of Egypt before I came, before I came unto you in Egypt are mine, as Reuben and Simeon. They shall be mine. And he continues in 48.19, and this is speaking to Joseph. And after, you know the story again. I'm not going to go through the hand where Joseph, Jacob put his hand on one and his hand on the other, and Joseph went to reverse them, and, Jake, and Jacob says no. And he says, and his father refused, that is, to remove his hands back the way they were. I know it, son, how my, my hands are placed. I know it. He also shall become a people. That's talking about one of his sons. He also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he. His seed shall become a multitude of nations. So here we see uh, a, a continuing promise from Jacob unto Joseph, unto Ephraim, and Manasseh. The development of a nation and a, develop, and a multitude of nations that are come, come out of those two men of that, from that day and that time. 
And when we continue into Genesis 49.1, and I have a lot of material here, so I might be going a bit fast. And I'm kind of abbreviating it as I go along here because I've got eight pages of notes. And unless you've brought your pizza and Cokes with you, we're going to be here a while. Um, Genesis 49.1, David called his sons together and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Now there's some conjecture about how you want to define the last days. And I'll leave it up to everyone to have your own opinion on that. But I personally think when it says the last days, it's talking about uh, where we're at right now. Um, Genesis 49, continuing in verses 23 and 25. And here it's talking specifically about Joseph. The archers have solely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. But his bow abode in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. And from thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Continuing in verse 25, even by the God of your fathers who shall help you, and by the Almighty who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The military power of, of Joseph's descendants is directly given from God. So are the other physical blessings. Why were they given? Why were the blessings given to Israel's children? What was the Lord's purpose? Did he have a purpose? Given in Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. The Old Testament purpose of Israel. Behold, I have taught you statutes, and this is Moses speaking, and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded you, that you shall do in the land whither you go to possess it. Therefore, and to keep them, therefore, and to do them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which hear all these statues and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there, for what nation is there so great? who has God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for. The purpose of ancient Israel was to be example to all nations on the world and to be a witness to them that God was with Israel in what God was doing and continued to do through Israel. A national example for all the world to follow. And interestingly, when we get to the New Testament, we'll find that that is what's going on with the individual Christians of today to be an example. Because as we know, ancient Israel failed. He continues in Exodus 19, restating that purpose to Israel as they had left Egypt starting in verse 4 through 8. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings. And that phrase we'll find also in the New Testament, uh, speaking of the end times. I believe it's in Revelation. And brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be a New Testament phrase here, kingdom of priests, 
and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all the words which the Lord commanded him. Hmm. Moses called the elders of the people. Sounds like a form of government here. Verse 8, and it says, And all the people answered together and said, Wait a minute. We just had the elders that Moses brought them to. And Israel wasn't just a group of 50 people or so. We're coming a few hundred thousand people here. So it's interesting how this transgression was made. Transition was made, though, from taking the information to the elders. And then it says, And all the people answered together. Whether they had a forum where the elders went back, talked to the people. I don't think they had voting machines in the day or phones or whatever. But it's an interesting, because it, it, it denotes a form of government from the top down through God to the elders down to the people. And they all agreed what, that they would do what the Lord said they would do. And they were totally unaware of their own limitations and lack of abilities. And so they didn't know it, but the Old Testament was made for an example for us today. An example of these people who thought they could live up to God's expectations, but they were unaware of their shortcomings and unaware of a need for a redeemer and the spiritual help that the Holy Spirit gives us today because they could not please him without having the Holy Spirit. Israel was never aware of this long-term strategic plan that they were fulfilling. But what was to happen if they failed to comply with the contract or, or the covenant? We can find that in Leviticus 26, 14 and 15. But if you will not hearken unto me and will not do all these commandments, and if you shall despise my statues, or if your soul abhorred my judgment, so that you will not do all my commandments, three-letter word there, all my commandments, but that you break my covenant. And continue in, in verse, let's skip down to 18. And if you will not yet for all of this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Interesting. Seven times more. The word time here is significant. Seven times. It's repeated in verses 18, 21, 24, and 28. Before we get into more explanation on that, let's go down and see what happens if they repent, which is down in Leviticus 26, verse 40. And if they shall confess their iniquity... And the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass, which they trespassed against me, and that also that they have walked contrary unto me, continuing in 40, verse 42, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, i.e. Ephraim and Manasseh, and also my covenant with Isaiah, <clears throat> and also my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember, and I will remember the land. The term seven times is very significant. It's significant as it's defined in Daniel 7.25. Daniel 7.25, to get an idea of this, let's read through this. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, talking about the end time beast here, shall persecute the saints, or one of them, uh, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half a time. What do you mean? Time, times, and a half a time. What's ta Time is time, isn't it? No. If we compare scriptures, and I'm not going to do it, I'm sure most of us know it, it's talking about three and a half years, 42 months, time of the tribulation. So a time is one year, 
times is two years, and a half a time is a half a year. Three and a half years. Now we can apply that back to the seven times that are back in Leviticus 26. There are 360 days in the Hebrew calendar, times seven gives you a number of 2,520. Many of us are very well familiar with that number, 2520. 2,500, the term of the punishment on ancient Israel for having broken the commandments. And what's interesting about this is how this is fulfilled. He would remember the covenant after their repentance and conclusion of seven times punishment. So Israel went into captivity officially at the end of a three-year siege in 722 B.C. Actually, there were some earlier deportations before that. Uh, some of them, they believe, as early as 20 years before that, and some of them 10 years before that. So we have a little bit of a range that we can look at. But if we want to look at the end of the three-year siege, when the Assyrians really took over and had a successful invasion, 722 B.C. plus 2,520 years comes out to 1798. Now, if you go back 20 years or earlier, it's 1778. July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence that was ratified in the United States of America. In, 18, in 1787, the U.S. Constitution was signed. And in 1789, George Washington became the first president. The start of reestablishing his blessings to Israel. To Israel, but not Judah. Because Judah didn't go into captivity, into, to, into Babylonian captivity until 605 B.C. Interesting figures again here. We add 2,520 years onto 605 B.C., and we come out with 1915. What's significant about 1915? Well, not 15 particularly, but 1970 in Great Britain, the Balfour Declaration was made declaring there shall be a national homeland for all Jewish people in Palestine, and it will be carved out of the Ottoman Empire that was decimated at the end of World War I. And to kind of motivate, if you want to call it motivation, negative motivation, Germany de de began to export Jews, even though they were only 1% of the population, in about 1933. And they started the first concentration camp at Dachau in 1933. And as the Jews were, were expelled from Germany, it set up a somewhat of a crisis situation of the day. And of course, it wasn't until after World War II until 1947, uh, actually it's 1948 when the actual, I think it was May 1948, Israel became a legitimate nation. The United Nations agreed to it in 1947. And there we have from the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Ephraim and Manasseh all the way through the modern day We have the prophecies about what's going to happen with these nations who have the blessings of God. And how with time they're going to turn away once again. 
The more important thing is for us here in the church and how we deal with it, how we deal with the negativity, how we navigate our way through what is before us today. We get some insight on scriptures. Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except for God. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. Now we understand that if governments demand something that is legal under the law of the teachings and ethics of God, we don't follow that. But if the government authorities have programs that are not in conflict with God's laws and rules and ethics, then we should abide by them. And notice, the church isn't on the scene yet. When we go back to when the blessings were given, when the people repented, when the conclusion of the seven times is when things began to happen. We have authorities acting as governmental authorities that can bring about very negative circumstances, including death, mass extermination. And quite often, out of that Holocaust comes his purpose his power and his will. In Daniel 7.25, let's go back there again and read that a second time. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High and shall persecute the saints of the Most High. And this all happens. God knows it's happening. God is still in control. He shall intend to change times and laws. And the saints shall be given into his hand. Given into his hand. Just as Jesus had a specific purpose in giving his life and no one, not even the disciples, really understood it at the time. The persecution of the saints at the end time also has a purpose. One, and I'm not going to list all the purposes, but two of them. One of them is to prove the individuals, and the second one is an additional witness to the people that are alive at that time. So where does that leave the church? The commission given to the church we can find it in Mark 16, verse 15. And he said unto them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel unto every creature. Well, I was out there uh, preaching it to a, a wild cat this morning. I don't know how well he listened, or she listened. I don't know if it's a he or she. Every creature. Squirrels, rabbits, fish, you know, hey. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, and who does not believe will be condemned. The commission of the church is to take the gospel to the entire world and make converts of individuals. Individuals, not nations. Individuals in all nations, whether they're in a nation that received the blessings of Ephraim and Manasseh or not. It doesn't matter. The relationship between the individual church member and God is more important than physical Israel. 
The church is bigger in scope and its function and its purpose is more important than that of physical Israel. The church will, at some time, at the return of Christ, when he comes back with his armies, will replace the current physical government of Israel and Judah and will implement greater spiritual blessings in the kingdom and a greater economy, a greater world peace and justice than ever before is on this world. Make no mistake about it, the spiritual is much more important than the physical, as exemplified really by the life of the Apostle Paul and everything that he suffered. Why the commission? Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first direction First resurrection. For over, over such the second death has no power. But they shall be, re, we just read this in the Old Testament, priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. And of course we know it's bigger than just a thousand years. It goes on after that. And we that are with him will rule over cities and nations. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, this is Romans 12, one, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, brethren, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So it takes work, it takes thought, it takes inspiration, it takes the Holy Spirit and guidance for the renewing of the mind. The, purchase, the church is in the world, but not part of it. The focus of the world is on political power and economic power. And, and hidden within that is personal gain of wealth and power in politics and personal gain for wealth and power through economics. <clears throat> and that's what the world is concerned about, politics and economics. Jesus said in, eight, in John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered unto the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here kingdom is being developed right now through the individuals that accept Christ or baptize, repent and are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the fighting and feuding between nations is to accomplish the political and economic will of those nations. We don't need to be a part of it. Sometimes these nations historically, such as when Babylon invaded Judah, go and do more than what God intended. And there's a scripture, and I was unable to find it, but there's a scripture where God says that Babylon, when they invaded Judah, went to the extreme and did more negative things to Judah than what he had intended. And that happened. 
military power given to Joseph and bestowed upon Ephraim and Manasseh are in effect today with his blessings. But the church is not part of that fighting machine. The nations of the world are not baptized as a nation where they call in the representatives and everybody has to become a Christian and everybody is forced baptized. It's an arbitrary selection opportunity to individuals. How the leaders of Ephraim and Manasseh today decide to use their own power is going to be on their own heads. And we don't even know sometimes or have the insight into it to even make any comment at all as to what's going on. We can go down through and we can see what happened when the kingdom split. I'm not going to turn there for lack of time. But when Solomon died, the kingdom split up and Rehoboam was going to set up an army and go back and he was going to invade Israel because they had, they, he was ready to declare civil war. This kingdom should not be split up. We're supposed to be one. And the prophet came to him, Second Chronicles 11 verse 2, and said, don't do it. This is of the Lord. This is of the Lord. Chronicles 11 verse 2. They didn't know it. Nobody knew it. Just like we don't know what's going on today either. We don't know what President Trump is doing. We don't know what President Eisenhower did. What was motivated by angels, what was motivated by God, or what was not motivated by God. And we don't know the ramifications. Things can be done by leading political officials to motivate somebody else to do something, or it can be done to their own harm. Or it can be without any influence at all. It is what it is. He's standing back and watching it. James Coburn used to be in the Congress of the United States, and when he left, he said, if the American people knew what goes on behind doors of Congress, they would throw us all out. Just because somebody comes out and makes a statement that is pro-Christianity does not mean they work on it and strive to achieve it in their own private life. That's what politicians do. They come out and make public statements to get everybody to believe in them. One particular man, when he was caught, and this goes back quite a number of decades ago, he was out of Pennsylvania. He was on a committee that had to do with the expansion of the interstate, interstate road system. And they had worked with the committee to extend the interstate system down to this one particular city. And when it looked like it was going to go through and this was all going to become a reality, he formed a front company and out, went out and bought all the land between where the interstate was and where that city was because he knew the government was going to buy it back. And of course, he had influence also on the price that was paid. But it just so happened this rookie congressperson who was there knew about it, knew the whole story, and he called him in public on it. And the guy, after a vitriol outburst, his last words to the man were, and that's the way I do business, validating himself. He went home, and seven to ten days later, he came down very sick, went to the doctor, and the doctor told him he had terminal cancer, and he was dead in 30 days. I personally believe that was the justice of God. My opinion. Ring the bell. Now that goes on and it's going on today and we can't see it and we're not privy to it. 
And if a man does go, and this is, again, continuing my opinion, okay, but I think it's valid, you go into that Congress or in the political system, unknowingly, one will become contaminated by the system over time and won't even know it. And you will start unknowingly support apparently good, righteous efforts, but behind the scenes, there lie devious, illegal, and unethical efforts and acts that are all self-serving for the acquisition of power and wealth into the instigators. I don't know if any of you ever experienced that. I have. It was three months after I supported something, and this was not political, this was professional and work. And then I found out three months afterward, and it sounded like on the surface a very good program that one should support. And indeed it was. But it was only brought about by those in power because they knew they could make out themselves. They didn't care about the people. I felt like I had my toast buttered by this man, and I felt like taking it back and pushing it right in his face and say, I know what scumbucket you are. Of course, I didn't. That's the way it is. And there's some Christian doctrines that put Christians at risk of falling right into that. <clears throat> the risk of Laodiceanism. We know what Laodiceanism is. Revelation 3.17, the attitude of the Laodicean church. I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Can you think of any doctrinal teaching? Redundant to say that, I guess. That may influence and lead a person unawares directly into that attitude. Directly into a Laodicean attitude. Anybody think of any? It's called prosperity doctrine. Prosperity doctrine. It'll lead you to look that, oh, I'm blessed because look at my economic benefits. And there's a downside to that too. The opposite side of the coin is the people that believe in it and try it and it doesn't work for them and they fail economically. What do they do? Turn away from Christianity? Where does the prosperity doctrine come into play in third world nations where there are true Christians? Or over in Burma and Thailand? Measuring spiritual development by riches and goods is an error. As we go through our life, we should be cognizant of where he is working within our lives. And when he opens the doors, and here's another point. When he opens the doors, and I've been here on this one too. When he opens the doors, we pray about something. He opens the door. We go up and we walk through that door. We think everything's going to be great. He's opened the door. He answered my prayer and told me, yes, this is good for you. Hold it. No, there's more to it than that. It may be good. It It definitely probably is not bad. But it doesn't mean that it's necessarily good because he's trying and testing you. He wants to see what your level of faith is. He wants to see how you're going to handle that situation. I've mentioned it before, how I had a door open for me and I got up and I walked through that door and I got in the room and I said, I don't want any part of this. And I turned around and walked back out. I felt guilty at the time because I felt like 
I'm pulling back from, God answered my prayer. I'm supposed to go through that door. I've since learned, no. Maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. One of the things that sometimes absence in our prayers is we need to qualify what we ask for, saying, if it's good for me, you know, or if I'm supposed to learn something from this, then let me know that I should walk through this door or shouldn't walk through this door. So we don't feel guilty about it. I'm on page five of eight pages of notes. But he says to the Laodicean church from Revelation 3.18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that your shame of your na- nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Riches will blind you to the truth of God when we begin to rely on them. As money as I love, I rebuke and chasten Jason, therefore be zealous and repent. <clears throat> you know, the Laodiceans, I'm not so sure that they could pray for thy kingdom come. If you love riches and goods that much, you don't want Christ to come, and that's the attitude of the tribes of the earth, who in Revelation 1.7, all the tribes of the earth mourn because of him. And in Revelation 18.11, it says, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys the merchandise anymore. John 12, 25, he says one, and I used to wonder about this. I don't anymore. I, fit, I think I fit into it. I think I understand it. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I've come to the point where maybe I do hate life in this world. I certainly find it much more difficult to navigate this world, and I certainly see much more evil in this world has ever been been before and you have to be an older person to be able to do that our planet is made up of very rich nations and very poor nations it doesn't matter what nation you live in as a member of the church we all suffer ravishings of bad weather and evils of mankind but creation itself mourns Romans 8 21 through 23 because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And that's where we are today, in the bondage of corruption. And it continues to get worse. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains until now. And this is Paul writing back then. I'm sorry, this is Revelation. No, it's Romans 8. It's Paul. Now that, verse 23, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. The planet that we live on is in the bondage of corruption and needs deliverance. Physical Israel, Jacob, Ephraim, Manasseh are going to be punished. You can read that back in Jeremiah 30. And it's interesting, he says, he will make a full end of the nations, but I will not make a full end of you. And he says to Jacob in Jeremiah 30, verse 10, Therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord. Be not dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. 
Jacob shall return, have rest and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. And guess who's going to be there to assure that Jacob has rest and no one will make him afraid in the future? You will be. Everyone sitting here. You are going to see that that happens because you are going to be with Christ when he returns to put in place the government of God. Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The church, eternal life, and spiritual blessings are better and more important than the physical Israel and the physical blessings. We need to be sure that we're demonstrating that in our attitude and in our approach to life. So we'll all see each other in the kingdom of God.